Usually when you start a sermon, you spend a lot of time trying to find a way to start it where you just kind of a, you know, get people's attention and connect with people. And um, this week as I was wrestling with this passage and this message, I just decided I wanted to start a little bit just speaking from the heart. Um, this is a hard topic. Um, it's a hard topic because we're dealing with death. We're dealing with something that we have experienced, many of us, through a loved one or a close friend. Um, our experiences with death vary from person to person, situation to situation. Um, we're all familiar with it from just watching the news and things like that. For some of us, it has been closer relationships. Some of it's, us has been closer in time. For some, it's been a long time back that you've experienced this with someone that you care about and love. For some, uh, it's been just really recent. But I want you to hear the good news in this today, but I just wanted to start by saying part of this is just hard. And 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul starts this little church in Thessalonica, and he gets a few weeks of teaching and training them before he has to flee under persecution. And they're experiencing some things that he wasn't able to cover in his teaching. And one of the things that they're experiencing was the fact that some people died. And we think that some people died under the persecution that Paul had to flee from. And so Paul is teaching them and have talked to them about the fact that there'll be a day that the Lord will, re, uh, will return and they think that it's going to happen pretty soon. And then all of a sudden, the people they love die. And they're wrestling with this question, how does all this work? Okay, Paul, you say Jesus is coming back, but now people are dead. Uh, how does all this work? And can you imagine being a new baby church without that kind of teaching yet? And you're not really sure what's going on. Here's what's ironic, right? We do have this teaching, and we still struggle with it, right? 2,000 years later, when we lose a loved one, all kinds of things go through our minds. We ask all these questions, too. Okay, now, how does all this work? Okay, I'll be caught up in the air if the Lord returns. I was kind of hoping he'd return before I had to lose anybody that I loved. But it doesn't happen that way. And so we find ourselves in the same spot, don't we? Dealing with the fallen world where life and death are things... People get born, people die. Do you know that the day my mom died, um, her next great-granddaughter was born on the exact same day? You know, and we're sitting there going, whoa, you know, how does life swing you back and forth? And that's the way the experiences that we have. And so the Apostle Paul wanted his church to be informed. He wanted them to understand, and he wants us to understand as well today. So in this small passage, that's my hope today, that we will read it and we'll walk away feeling the way that Paul intended the church in Thessalonica to feel. And we're going to break it into three sections. And the first one is that God will raise the dead just like he did Jesus. That's the first piece of this, that God will raise the dead just like he raised Jesus from the dead. And so this is what Paul says to this little church. Again, remember, baby church, just starting out. This is what he says in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed. One of the things we have to do, and I say this often to you, is slow down and just look at the scripture a little slower to see the important little components in it that we might read right past. And that's a really important one. Paul's looking at this little church. He goes, I want you to understand. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. And, and, and he's, what he's going to do is he's going to start teaching them some things that they don't know and he wants them to know and understand. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then he calls them brothers. This is a term that we see him use several times. It's an intimate term. It's a family term. And this little 
church in the few weeks that Paul knows him, he now says, you're my brothers and sisters. Why? Because we're united in Christ. And we've been talking about that over the last several messages. That even if they're distant like they are, Paul says, we're still united in Christ. You're still my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we're separated by space and time. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. And that is a, a euphemism. Uh, it's what, something that's been used in the New Testament about death. So he's not saying that they're literally sleeping. He's talking about those who have died. So I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he says, I'm going to inform you, brothers, about what happens for those who have fallen asleep so you don't grieve as those who have no hope. Now, here's a, a really fascinating piece that I got to see. Now, you have to remember, you know, I get a whole week, right, to be studying this and looking at this passage. And I always say, you only have to think about it for 30 minutes. I had to think about it for a whole week, right? And one of the things that was really interesting and clear, when he's saying, as those who have no hope, he's talking to a culture that literally had no hope when it came to death. And in that culture, they believed that death was final. Now, can you imagine, even if you might not think that there's a God or you might not even wrestle with the issue of heaven and hell, can you imagine thinking in a culture that the predominant thought was that there's nothing after life? Even in our culture today, most people believe there's some sort of something after life, even though there's a whole variety of opinions about what that might be like. Here, they don't believe that at all, and, and I should have brought this today, but they, they shared some different inscriptions that were on tombstones or even journals that they found, and one, one was a letter from a, a mom who lost their young daughter writing to another mom and just saying, it's just hopeless. She's gone. Her existence has stopped. Can you imagine that being the predominant thought, the predominant worldview, that it just all ceases, and so everybody who lost somebody that they loved during this time believed that it just stopped. And now you've got these Christians that are going, oh wait, there's something more. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. I don't want you to think like everybody else around you who has no hope when they lose somebody that they love. And again, I just want to try to help you get yourself in that mindset of a culture that believed that there is nothing. And he says, I don't want you to grieve like that because they have no hope. And then he says in verse 14, for since we believe, and so again, we're just going to go slow through this, since we believe, since we have faith, they had put their faith in something, they believed something. What was it? For since we believe that Jesus died, and that he rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says, you believe, you had faith, that Jesus died, he rose again from the dead, and remember last week we did a baptism out at the lake, and that's what we were symbolizing, death, burial, and resurrection. And, and Paul saying, since you believe that and that Jesus rose again, we want you to know that just like that, God is going to bring people back to life just like he did with Jesus. And God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will bring, through Jesus, will bring those who have died to be with those who are alive. And because of what Jesus has done, he wants them to know that there is great hope now. And again, I, I try to get my brain around it because I grew up in a, in a Christian home and I grew up in a culture at that time that was predominantly, you know, very heavy Christian worldview. To think what this message must have been like to a people that had no hope that there would be life after death. 
And now they believe that God raised somebody from the dead, Jesus. And so since we believe that, that Jesus died and rose again through Jesus, God will bring with those with him those who have fallen asleep. He's given them some great hope that they hadn't considered before. And then he goes on to say this, For this we declared to you by a word from the Lord. This is what we told you, he said, I'm reminding you, that we who are alive, those who are still alive, and who are left until the Lord comes back, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's declaring it, those who are alive, who have been left, and then the Lord comes back, will not precede those who have already fallen asleep. Let me just show you a couple of places where we even see some of this, uh, the resurrection of the dead before the return of Christ in the Bible. Here's Matthew chapter 27. This is at the crucifixion. The tombs also were opened, and this is verse 52, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I mean, we kind of gloss over that, but kind of picture that. At the time when Jesus is resurrected and raises from the dead, there are people coming out of the tombs. You talk about a movie. You want to make a movie out of Scripture, take that one. My boys always want to do it from Revelation because that's the coolest book in the Bible, but when you're 13. Um, But (laughs) that's what's happening here. They've come out of the tombs and they're walking around in the city and people are seeing them. And the power of Christ to raise people from the dead was evident even then. Can you imagine what people must have been thinking and what they must have experienced when they saw that happening? A famous one that most of us know is John chapter 11. This is the story of Lazarus. And he says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. There's that image again. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. They're being very literal. He's fallen asleep. He must just be snoozing. That's how they're seeing it. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Here's the thing that this little passage tells us, though, this little section here in verse 15, and these pictures that we get here in Matthew 27 and John 11. The power of Jesus bringing somebody back from the dead is like waking somebody from a sleep. Isn't that good news? If you don't remember anything else this morning, I hope you remember that. That the power of the living God working through Jesus Christ is like you sleeping and somebody just coming by and shaking your shoulder. And I'm not talking about like my normal 13-year-old sleeping so hard that you can't wake them up, right? I'm talking about the light sleeper that you shake their shoulder and they're like, okay, I'm ready to go. Jesus says to Lazarus, come on out. What does he do? He just comes on out. (laughs) The people come out of the tombs. They weren't being shaken to get out of those tombs. Christ raised them and they came out. The power of Jesus... To raise the dead is the same as somebody just waking somebody who's asleep. And so that imagery of asleep, an imagery of this power of the living God working through Jesus to wake people is good news. And Paul wants to make sure that 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 the church in Thessalonica knows this because they've experienced death and they're like going, what's going on? We sometimes do that too, right? We think that if I'm following Jesus, everything will go according to plan. Everything doesn't go according to plan. I wasn't even sure if I was going to share this this morning, but just this last week, my cousin passed away from a brain tumor. 
He had been a pilot, a missionary pilot. He grew up in Uganda and Kenya, went back to Uganda and Kenya and served. And just two years ago, got cancer, 60 years old, passed away at 62. You go, well, he was training missionary pilots. Why? Why does this happen? We ask that all the time, right? I don't think why is a bad question. Just where we go with it becomes an issue. But the question of, I don't understand, that's not a bad question because the, Thessalon- the church in, in Thessalonica, they were saying the same thing. I'm not sure I understood. I thought if we come to faith in Christ, we'll be waiting till his return and we'll go back and when he comes back and everything will be smooth and good. And yet people have died. Things have happened. Well, now we can know 2,000 years later, right? 2,000 years later, we have the same thing. I thought if I gave my life to Jesus that those things wouldn't happen. Now, we know better, and we try to talk about that here at Rock Hill, but in some parts of our Christian faith, and in some, let me rephrase that, in some churches, they teach that, that if you're following Jesus, I call it you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, we see it right here in, Thessalon- in Thessalonians that they had already, people who had been sincere in their faith following Jesus were killed and they died. And they're going, what does this mean? And Paul keeps giving them these words of encouragement, these words of clarity, these words of truth. And so he says, I want to declare to you by word from the Lord that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, those who are still here when Christ returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They already are with him. So the first piece, the first section of all of this is that that he will raise us from the dead like he did Jesus. The second part of this whole section is that he will raise the dead with power. He's going to do this spectacularly with, can't even say that word this morning. He's going to do it with great power and and it's going to be noticeable and people are going to see it because this is what verse 16 says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Let me, let me just kind of try to picture that, you know, kind of paint a picture just a little bit for you. The Lord himself is going to be coming from heaven with a cry of command. And this is the same one in Genesis 1-3 who said, let there be light and there is light. He cried out a command and the whole universe comes into, into being. In Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 8, he awoke during the storm and his disciples said, ah, we're going to die. And he stood up and said, peace be still. And it ceased. It just stopped. This one who's going to come on the clouds and cry with a cry of command is the same one who saw the most demonically possessed men in all of Scripture. They were so violently possessed by demons that no one could pass that way. And he walks up to them and he says to the demons, go. One word. He didn't have to battle with them. He didn't have to do any kind of incantation. He just says, go. And the pigs are gone. I mean, the demons are gone into the pigs and they run down the hill. He's the one in John chapter 11, verse 43, who stands at the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come on out. That's it. Three words. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, dead four days, stands up and comes out. That's who we're talking about. That's the one that's going to come back on the clouds. That's the same one in John chapter 19, verse 30, who on the cross said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished... He meant a whole lot more than just, I'm giving up my spirit. 
This one who is descending from heaven with a cry of command is, is the same one who said, it is finished, and now all of the sins of everyone who comes to faith in me have been wiped away. All of the judgment that are waiting on those who need to be forgiven and who need to be cleansed from all unrighteousness has all been done away with. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. That's what I trust in. Oh, I've finished it partially. Good luck, Dean, on the rest of it. I got some of it done for you. You got to figure out the rest. It's not what happened on that cross when he said it was finished. The work was finished. That's the one who is coming from heaven with a cry of command. That ain't no little command. That's the same one who commands the universe to continue to exist. Do you know that you and I are sitting here today fully, well, some of us partially broken and all that, but all of our molecules are all held together by Jesus. If Jesus were for one second to not paying attention to the universe and holding it all together, we would fly off into oblivion. We were held together, this structure, everything is held together by Jesus. Jesus is paying attention all the time, holding it all together. That's the one who is going to come on the clouds of heaven and cry out with a great command. And then the verse says, with the voice of an archangel. We don't know much about archangels. We only know one that's named, and that's in Jude chapter 1. Michael is called an archangel. We also see Gabriel named, but he's not called an archangel. So we don't know much about him, but we just know that they've got some power. All of this is to be a picture of power. Jesus coming back from heaven with power. And then he's going to come back with the trumpet of God. What does that mean? Well, we get a few pictures of the trumpets. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. This is on the, on the mountain while they're waiting for the Ten Commandments. And thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Got the picture? There's this big cloud on the mountain and a trumpet blast and everybody falls down. That was just one spot on earth. He's coming back with that trumpet blast that the whole world will hear. Psalm 47.5 says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And just one more, Matthew 24, verse 31. And he says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, that's an amazing picture of what will happen when that trumpet is sounded. One of the things that was really interesting, almost every commentator used this phrase to some, some fashion of this phrase about this. And I just thought it was interesting. This is what they said. They said, there will be no disadvantage for those who have died. There will be no disadvantage. And the church Thessalonica was thinking that somehow it was better to be alive when the Lord returned, and they were worried about what was happening to those who weren't. And Paul says there's no disadvantage for them. 
they actually have an advantage. So the third section, it tells us that God will raise the dead to be with him forever. That part of his plan, part of how this will work, is that he will raise the dead to be with him forever. This is what it says in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now the word there, caught up, is, is a picture, the Greek word is to, to grab or to see suddenly, to snatch it up. Kind of like, just bad example, but this little tissue right here, just snatching it up. That's, how the, that's what the word is there. To forcefully and suddenly lift something upward. What a picture. We'll be caught up, snatched up. And he says, we'll be caught up together with them into the clouds. And why clouds? Well, even in the rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see pictures, symbolic pictures of the importance of clouds. And here's God's presence being in those clouds. Here's Exodus 13, 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That cloud as he was leading them out into the wilderness was his presence. This is Exodus 24. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And then in the Mount of Transfiguration he was still speaking in John 17 when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice, of the, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Paul is saying he's coming. He's coming on a cloud. And this cloud, we, we don't know if they're actual clouds like we see, but it's spectacular. It's, it's an image of stuff that had been shown God, showing God's presence throughout all of the scriptures. So he's saying a cloud, that's the image of the presence of God. And so we're caught up, brought up, now, here's where things get a little tricky, um, and I'm just going to be honest with you that this is one of those parts of Scripture that can be confusing, and it can be a little, um, can be divisive, and we don't want it to be divisive at Rock Hill, so I'm just going to put it out there as plain as I can. The next piece, the, the part that is a little confusing in this verse, while we're being snatched, brought up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air... What happens after that? This idea of meat, this word, like I just said, the word about caught up into the air was this word of snatching. The word meat in the original language is a, is a picture of like a dignitary coming to your town and you're going out to meet that dignitary and then coming and helping them finish the rest of their journey into the town. Kind of like people did when Jesus was the triumphal entry. They came out to him, and they rejoiced, and then they went with him as he came into the town. So what does this mean for us, um, and, and how do we un understand this? And I'm just going to do it like this, all right? Simply put, what is being caught up, what occurs once we get caught up to meet the Lord in the air? And there are two different kind of perspectives on this, all right? So I'm just going to put it out there simply, and I'm not going to give you an answer, all right? <laughs> simply put, what does being caught up meet mean and what happens after that when we meet the Lord in the clouds? Do we, with the Lord, return to heaven 
until a time of tribulation on the earth is complete and then come back to earth in the second coming. That's one perspective, that we meet him in the air and we keep on going. And then we come back. Or do we meet him in the air and like the word might meet might give us this connotation, do we come back with him right from there to the earth to begin his earthly reign? Amen? You can go home now. (laughs) Now, like I said, I'm not going to answer that today. And while it's a great discussion and it's important to have because it's in the Bible, anything that's in the Bible, we should try to understand. So I invite you to study and research and be informed, as Paul says. I do not want you to be uninformed. He wants you to be informed. I want you to be informed. The purpose of this text and the purpose of the message today isn't to cover all of that, and I'm going to let you wrestle with some of that. But it's not a topic that should divide us. And at Rock Hill, even amongst the elders and staff, we would have varying understandings of this part of the passage. So again, the two options are meeting the Lord in the air, heading back up to heaven until the second coming after the tribulation, meeting the Lord in the air, and joining him coming back down to earth for the start of his reign, his earthly reign. The most important place, though, I want to just suggest this morning, the most important place of agreement needs to be the last part of verse 17. What does it say? Somebody say it for me. So we will always be with the Lord. Regardless of what happens in that little bit of time frame in between, The bottom line is, whichever perspective you're taking on that particular little section, just a couple of words there, we're going to be with the Lord forever. And all people agree on that part. (laughs) All the people as they look at those passages, all the scholars and theologians, we will be with the Lord forever. That's the linchpin. That's the most important part. That's what Paul is trying to get across. He's actually not trying to give us a a clear, clear picture about how all the end times work. Paul is trying to say to this little church, guess what? In that day, those who are dead and those who are alive are going to be united with the Lord forever. That's the good news. That's what he wants them to know. The whole point of this passage was never to divide people, but to cause people to say, oh, I'm going to be with the Lord forever. So my cousin who just passed away, I'm going to be with him forever when that day occurs. And I might be joining him before the Lord returns. We don't know that, right? And then Paul tells us in verse verse 18, the whole point of all of this, the whole point of all of this is therefore encourage one another with these words. That's the whole point of this passage, that we are supposed to encourage one another with these words. We're supposed to encourage one another with the hope and the truth of Christ's return. Christ's return is to be an encouragement for all of us. Whether we're alive when he returns, or whether we've already died, or somebody we know has already died, we are going to be reunited together, and we will always be with the Lord. That's what he wants them to take home from this. That's what I want you to take home from this. That's what Paul wanted them to hear They were wondering, what is happening? Some of our people have died. We're waiting for the Lord's return. And Paul says, get this. One day, the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are alive will be united with the Lord, and all of us will be with him forever. That's what we're supposed to encourage each other with. And we will always be with the Lord.
I can't give you better news than that today. Many of us in this room have lost somebody dear to us. We as a church have had a number of deaths in this past year. We need to know that those people are with the Lord and we will one day be with the Lord and we will all always be with the Lord. So what do we do with this in a practical way this morning? How can we encourage one another with these words? How do these words work out in the real world where we can encourage one another? First, I want to encourage us that we should grieve when death occurs. As Christians, we of all people should know that death is the great enemy. Death has occurred because sin has come into the world, and so now death occurs. So we can grieve and should grieve. And when we know somebody grieving, we should allow them to grieve and come alongside them in, our gr- in their grief. I mean, a good picture of this is what? Grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. So we grieved at the family at the loss of my mom, and we rejoiced at the birth of this great-grandchild that came into the world. Just recently, I was at a family reunion on my wife's side of the family, and I was on her foster family side, and uh, it was great to catch up with people. And you know how these things go. People just start having conversations here, having conversations there. All of a sudden, there were six of us sitting in chairs just in a circle of all different ages having a conversation. And all of a sudden, it dawned on us that all six of us had lost our moms. And, and I got to tell you, we could have, like, oh, let's move right along because that's really hard, really hard to talk about, uncomfortable. It was just for five to seven minutes. It wasn't long. It was just a beautiful time of kind of grieving together, of kind of going, man, it's it's hard. We looked around and go, wow, we've all lost our moms. And one person got teary-eyed, and another said something they missed, and another person got teary-eyed, and another person said something they missed. And for five, six, seven minutes, we just had a healing conversation. We grieved together. We encouraged each other because we had this common experience. I just share that with you because the, the point is that we, we didn't say, don't grieve, don't talk about it. We should grieve when death occurs because we live on this side of heaven and we know that it was not God's design for people to die. But we know that God brought a solution and a remedy. But it's okay for us to grieve. Second application, I think, is we should grieve as those who have hope knowing that we'll be reunited with them and Christ one day. So an application of this is how can we help each other grieve as those who have hope? To grieve, but to grieve with hope. The beautiful thing on that day, the six of us sitting around there, all of our moms had been believers. So we were able to, to grieve with hope, support each other with the hope, knowing this passage that there would be a day. Third, I say, let's walk alongside each other during our grief. Let's seek each other out and support each other. Simple question. Sometimes we don't do this because it's hard and we feel awkward. I had a friend whose daughter was killed when she was 13 years old. Uh, this was before I, I didn't know her, the death that occurred before I knew him. But he said one of the hardest parts for him was walking, and this wasn't a big town, walking to the grocery store, seeing somebody from church at the other end of the aisle and see them turn and go around the other way. Because they didn't know what to say. So they just took off. Said that was hard. 
I just needed somebody to say hi. Sometimes you don't even have to say anything, but here's some things. Walking alongside each other, simple questions. How are you doing? That's a great question to ask anybody. Is there anything I can do for you? I pray for you. Dropping a note. When my mom passed away, I was working in prison ministry. And I came back after my week away, and these guys, and and, and I'm telling you this for a purpose, because when you're walking alongside people in grief, just be you. Just do what you do. And so I get back. These guys got no money. They're in prison. They don't have much of anything, but there's 40 guys in the class that I was teaching. Those 40 guys found one of the guys in the program who was an excellent artist, and they went and asked the staff, can you get us just a construction piece of paper and a pencil? And getting a pencil is a big deal in prison, okay? (laughs) And so they take this card, and this dude draws this beautiful set of praying hands. And it said, from the class of 58, and they always do these little taglines with whatever class, class of 58, God is great, 58. So class of 58 at the bottom, God is great. And then each one of the guys wrote something in there. My, My point in sharing that story is they just did what they had. They just used what they had. And then, you know, what's really interesting is I'd go into prison, And then the tough dude, he'd look at me and go, that was it. (laughs) I'm with you. You know, one of the other guys, they'd come up and say, how's it going? Another guy might sit down and say, hey, man, I lost my mom too, and start having a conversation. But my point is they all just did what they could do. The dude with the nod, you know, I loved it because I knew what he was saying. (laughs) He was saying, I don't know what to say, man, but I'm with you, right? It's just being you, coming alongside each other in our grief, and just be you. Bring what you have to the table. And just care when we're going through these things. And the last one is let's allow others from the body of Christ to walk along with us in our grief. So the other side of it is when you're the one experiencing grief, let's let others come alongside and help. Listen, people won't respond perfectly. That's the hard part, right? Sometimes people say something, they're trying their best, they don't. We have to be gracious while we're receiving it as well. So let others from the body of Christ walk along with us in our grief. Allow other people to minister to you. Be honest with them about how you're doing. When they say how you're doing, tell them how you're doing. And when you know what you need, share it. Sometimes just saying, you know what? What I really need right now is just somebody to sit down and listen for a little bit. What I really need right now is just a cup of coffee. What I really need right now is just to be alone. Just share it. We should be building the kinds of relationships in this body of Christ where we can just say it. I'm going through this hard thing. I'm going through grief. Can you come along and hang out with me? Can you give me a little space? Thanks for caring. You know what you need. When you know what you need, ask for it. When Christians see death, we should encourage one another because God's going to raise the dead, just like he did Jesus. And get this picture. One day, Jesus will come on the clouds with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and a trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will meet him in the air, and so we will be with the Lord always encourage each other with these words. Amen.